Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Zach Carlson, and you are listening to the World is Wrong podcast. With Andas Jones and Brian Connolly, usually. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about really saying that one there. That's pretty great. (laughs) Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I am your host, Andras Jones, and today, in the absence of my co-host, Brian Connolly, we have a very, very special guest joining me to discuss this exciting film. Well, uh, exciting is maybe the wrong word, this hypnotic film. Welcome to The World is Wrong, Zach Carlson. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be in this wrong world. Yeah, yeah. Now, you and Brian have been working together, collaborating on stuff for a long time. Screenplays, books, award-winning Adult Swim shows. Uh, When did you first meet Brian Connolly? Brian and I met in a video store in Olympia, Washington in 1997. And his mother came in looking for horror movies on VHS because she had a large collection of them. And she just kind of dragged him in. And we instantly, Brian and I instantly fell in love. And uh, we've been like, you know, creative collaborators and best friends for 22 years. Which video store was that? It was called Northwest Video Plus. And it was, um, you know, one of many independent video stores that at that point, you know, was competing with Hollywood Video and Blockbuster. And so the only way that they were able to make their you know, business continue was by having a pretty robust adult section. So it was a pretty depressing situation. Was that the but one that, was that the one that was up between fourth and fifth avenues? This is all Olympia we're all Olympia, Washington kids. Uh, although I wasn't a kid when you were a kid. I'm a little bit older. But uh, was that the one that was between fourth and fifth up towards uh, heading up towards Lacey? No, it's the other way. Um that one is Video One, where I also worked. But this was a store that was on the, uh, I guess it was over by like the West Side Big Toms. Huh. Yeah, I, th- so. I realized, as you were saying it, that's where I met you, was at Video One. I remember you as one of, you were one of the cool guys from Video One. Yeah. I, I, I met all my friends at video stores. So I guess I'll never make another friend because there's so few video stores now. <laughs> and it wasn't just uh, the adult section. You had some great, it was a great little video store for just, you know, cool movies. I remember when yeah, it closed, I found some great finds uh, when that, sadly, right. when that went out of business. I found some great uh, videos that are probably still in my collection and I should probably it's transfer. It's funny because um, video, you're talking about video one, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the owner... Uh, she was a very religious woman, and so she refused to stock 
The Last Temptation of Christ by Scorsese. Um, but she, they, they did have a VHS movie called uh, Butt Sluts. And I was just like, well, that seems like a double standard to me, but what do I know? I'm just an atheist. Well, that was, so it was some early adventures in the world being wrong, sounds like. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> her favorite movie of all time was Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan. Best film ever made. That was her opinion. I saw it recently. It's not bad. You know, if no, you're, the, if you're into, I mean, I, I, I'm not, if, uh, I don't believe that the, that it's really at odds with the volcano. I think they, you think they can live in the same world. Uh, but, uh, some people need to pick one or the other. Do you have a, do you have a, a favorite between Dante's pick and volcano? I would have to choose Dante's peak, uh, because I love the town where it was filmed, which is called Wallace, Idaho. That's a town built into the crevices of the mountains of northern Idaho that was kind of established by miners who then went to war with their employers. Um, it's a fascinating story. It took place in the 30s, and that actual battle uh, was turned into a novel by Dashiell Hammett called Red Harvest. So that's like the history behind that town is fascinating. And also, Dante's Peak has a grandma being boiled alive in front of her grandchildren, which Volcano does not have. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Volcano does have uh, the destruction of a neighborhood that I spent a lot of time in. It's always fun in a, in a, a disaster movie where you get to see some place that you know get destroyed, but you were familiar with... So we both have kind of the same reasons for enjoying these films, is watching places that we love and are familiar with get destroyed by a volcano. Yeah, why do we like that so much? What's wrong with us? Yeah, and we, I mean, uh, Volcano doesn't have a grandmother uh, getting boiled alive, but it does have a beloved character actor whose name I can't remember at this point, but he's in the uh, the new uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 and playing the, uh, oh. the pacifist character. Do you remember? Do you know who I'm John talking about? John Carroll Lynch? Yeah, John Carroll Lynch. You get to see him try and jump over uh, a bunch of lava to get a kid safe, and then he lands in the lava. And uh, Sorry, spoiler alerts, folks. We're, you thought you were going to be hearing about birth, but we are instead spoiling volcano movies from the 1990s. Uh, it could be said that the 1990s spoiled volcano movies. That, so. <laughs> that the, the 1990s spoiled volcano movies, yeah, yeah. Uh, any other favorite Volcano movies before we move on to this movie that is, well, it is kind of like, it's more, this is more like an iceberg than a Volcano, I suppose. Yeah, I would say, yeah, for Kidman's uh, work, this would be an iceberg, and then, oh, say Destroyer would be a Volcano. Which we're going to be getting to in our next episode that you can tune into next week. And uh, But uh, yeah, we are here to discuss the film birth from Jonathan Glazer, his second film. And uh, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about it. And uh, you're new to this, but basically, basically, we're going to play a clip and then I'll talk about it. And then we get into our discussion. But uh, do you have any sort of just sort of uh, from the hip first setup that you want to say about what you think about this film? Well, it's funny. Um, think that this film is constructed of a bunch of things that usually don't entertain me, which are about, you know, it's about like wealthy people in New York City, you know, and it's just like all these things that I just don't identify with. And yet this movie like speaks to me so much at like a visceral human level that it's maybe it's definitely my top three favorite movies of the last 20 years. Then you are a perfect person to discuss it with. Okay, well, then let's play a clip and then uh, 
start talking about this fantastic movie. Who are you? Who are you? Let's go into the kitchen, I'll tell you there. Are you gonna play a trick on me? No. Okay. <laughs> He wants to talk to me in private. Could you believe that? What do you want? You. You want me? Is that what you're saying? You're my wife. We're married? You're telling me that we got married at some point in time? Yes. Well, I'm getting married to Joseph. He's a little bit older than you. We have a little bit more in common. But the timing was a little bit different. Who knows? Maybe you're a handsome little boy, but I'm getting married to someone else. It's me. Sean. Birth from 2004 is a genuinely mysterious film, which means describing it is difficult to do without missing the point or breaking its spell. There's a lot to discuss, but I found it so much easier to entice people by telling them things about it, like it's the middle film from the guy who did Under the Skin and Sexy Beast, or that it's the film that made me realize how great an actor Nicole Kidman is. Or I could drop tantalizing touchstones like, it's like if Rosemary's Baby was a love story. Or if Kubrick directed The Sixth Sense and cared about female characters. Uh, but what I usually do is just describe the scene at the heart of the film where Kidman's character realizes that she's starting to believe that the ten-year-old boy who has shown up claiming to be her ten years deceased husband and true love might actually be telling the truth. It's all in one shot as Kidman's character and her husband, played by Danny Houston, arrive at the opera late and find their seats, and then we push in on Kidman's face, and it feels like we stay there for a very long time and not long enough, and we just, there's so much that happens there, and it's one of those things where when you're watching it, you're like, well, it's just a camera on a face, but it's so much more, and I can't. That's that's basically this film. It's a. That's sort of like what you were saying. I don't know why I am so drawn into it, but it's just it's. You, you can't stop. You can't be. You can't help but be drawn into it, like in that shot. And I feel like the whole film is like that. So yeah, well, that's that's birth. Can I throw in a theory, maybe that I'm oh, yeah. just cooking now as yeah. you're saying that. The movie is so built on uh, the fact, you know, you're following this incredibly composed, respectable family, you know, of like probably like 12th generation millionaire New York, you know, upper crust people. And they're all just like so incredibly sophisticated, you know, every single one of them. And, and that's Nicole Kidman, her mother, her sister, and, um, you know, her fiance, Danny Houston. And they are completely cut off, like at the knees, 
emotionally, mentally by a 10 year old. And like, it brings their world crashing down. And like, to me, that's fascinating. It's like, you know, this like house of cards that they're, you know, that they are, that they represent. is just like toppled because this kid comes in and just like turns their lives upside down. And as that scene with, with Nicole Kidman that you're talking about where all that realization and revelation like sweeps over her is like totally, you know, the most powerful part of the movie. But this thing about the, you know, the people just getting completely overwhelmed by the possibility of this being true is really entertainingly depicted by Danny Houston because he's such an arrogant, you know, like intellectual prick. And he basically ends up being a 10 year old himself and like having tantrums because his wife to be may or may not be falling in love with a 10 year old. Oh yeah. I, I, I want to talk about his character because I think it's having rewatched the film now a few times for this. I, I find I, I've gained a whole new appreciation for that character, but uh, it is in keeping with our format. I should probably usually one of us asks, but you're new to this. So I'll, I'll guide you through this. Uh, like you would be, you'd ask, how is the world wrong about this film? But I'll just tell you how the world is wrong about this film. And you probably know this. I mean, I don't need to tell you, but as far as the listeners are concerned, the reason I've chosen here, first of all, it's not like it's, it's a weirdly, it's a weirdly popular, unpopular film because when it came out, people did not know what to do with it. It got weird reviews. It's a hard film to talk about. It's an easy film to make jokes about. Um, and it's very different than Sexy Beast. And and that was the only other thing that Jonathan Glazer had done, and other than the videos and the commercials. And so people right. just either made jokes about it or ignored it, or maybe like you or me watched it and were like, oh my God, this is amazing, but there's no one to talk to, it, talk to about it because no one else has seen it. And then right. Under the Skin came out, and that was like a really, that seemed like a really big, that really put Jonathan Glazer on the map. And then it, people would talk about Jonathan Glazer and they would talk about Under the Skin and Sexy Beast and Birth would sort of fall through the cracks. And whenever I would listen to those conversations, I'd be like, uh, you're burying the lead, people. The, birth is the... I mean, I love the other two, but Birth is... I mean, and I should be honest about this. I just saw Under the Skin. I've been looking forward to seeing it for a long time. I finally watched it. I loved it. Uh, but I was putting it off in this way because... It was a film, not that I was, I didn't want to see, but that I wanted to see so much. So, uh, but right. now having seen all three, and maybe there was a little bit of sour grapes about like, well, I'm not going to see Under the Skin until you all see Birth. Um, but, but uh, in preparation for this, I went and checked out, a, you know, how many people have done podcasts about it because I always like to see it as a sort of a gauge of how wrong the world is, and. Birth is definitely getting a reappraisal. There is There are people oh. who are going back and I think are starting to recognize it. I feel like also, I think it seems like from a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to, the podcasts with women as hosts really, really know how to talk about this film and a lot of the film, the podcasts with guys as hosts don't really know how to talk about this film. That's a lot like a lot of yuck, yuck, uncomfortable joke, kind of jokey kind of thing. It, they right. can, and that's sort of one of the ways that I feel like the world is wrong about it. And it might just be that this film would have resonated and maybe even did resonate. But most of the people writing 
film blogs and writing for magazines when it came out were a lot more dudes. So it just might mm-hmm. be that the audience for this has has found their way into critical media and now the world is less wrong about it. But I'm still very, very happy to talk about it, um, especially last week we talked about Fur, an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus, and I feel like the two are very, really, really function together. They're very similar. They take place in similar worlds, uh, and they're both... They're both really great in their own regard, but there's there is something about this film that is so much more than the sum of its parts. And uh, you know, we this is what I kind of want to get into with you, like where, you know, where the the moments of mystery lie and what really jumps out at you. What's your experience with Jonathan Glazer? Well, I saw Sexy Beast, uh, despite its title, because I was I'm very prudish, and uh, something in the trailer. I think it was just like the hostility coming from Ben Kingsley was so exciting to me <laughs> that um, I went and saw the movie in the theater and I just was like nuts about it. I think I saw it like three times in two weeks when it played in Olympia. And um, I was just fascinated because it was about unattractive for the most part, you know, unattractive men, certainly. Um, and just they're kind of like bumbling through you know, a very difficult situation. And it was so like, just kind of, un, you know, in, in an era of crime movies that were completely predicated on quote unquote coolness, like, you know, that guy, like lock stock and two smoking barrels and all that crap. Mm-hmm. You suddenly have this movie that's like, makes being a criminal look as awkward as just being, you know, like a middle-aged plumber or something. And I, and there was that aspect that appealed to me. And then Ben Kingsley's performance is just like unstoppable, which I don't know if you've heard this. He based on his grandmother's behavior. Do you know this? <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He said that she was like, she would terrorize his family to the point of where they were all just like frozen in terror by her. And so not, no, not, no, not, no. Yes. Yes. Not, no. <laughs> Yeah, that was his grandmother. <laughs> well, oh, I so, love that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's that, but then there's also this really subtle relationship stuff that would happen um, between the you know the the main character and his wife. Um, and you know, Gal. His name was his name was Gal, I think, and I can't mm-hmm. remember her name. But there's the they kind of subtly develop that relationship so strongly, but that, that there's a point where there's a phone call. And you only hear his half of the phone call, and yet you feel like the bond between them so strongly that it like makes you emotional, it, which is an impossible feat to pull off, you know, as a filmmaker. Like a one-sided phone conversation, you know, hitting the audience that hard, but it did, and that that's what made me interested in this filmmaker. And actually, this is good. We'll set this up. So you've seen Sexy Beast, and now where are you? This whole month, we're looking at Nicole Kidman. That's our month of Kidmania. And as I said in my intro, this... And there were a couple of other ones. I mean, obviously, Eyes Wide Shut was pretty amazing, but I was looking at that for Stanley Kubrick. And then uh, I saw the others, and I was like, I was impressed, but it wasn't really exactly my kind of movie. And then I saw this, and I was just like... I'm. 
okay, Nicole Kidman is has a sense is this is one of the, the one of those roles where now she is in this other level of actor where I am a believer. <laughs> and right. so where were you in your relationship? Because she's she was unavoidable for the decade and more before. So what was your relationship right. to Nicole Kidman going into this film? I'd avoided her. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever seen her in anything before I saw Birth. Really? You hadn't seen Eyes Wide Shut? I still haven't. You're an odd duck, Zach Carlson. It's it's because it's about sex, and movies about sex depress me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Zach, uh, well, uh, this is when I want to call in Dr. Sidney Friedman, played by Alan Arbus from our last episode, to, to put you on the couch and... <laughs> find out where well, I mean, the chicken can, is but uh, uh i can tell you where the chicken is yeah really quick i was raised in a uh, metaphysical sex cult oh so yeah so anyway uh so yeah movies about sex just kind of bring me down oh sorry are there uh wow so to die for did, to die for it seems like like a lot of movies like you're a big movie guy you program a lot of films I haven't noticed yeah. you being your your uh, tastes being particularly sexless, but you know I haven't really been looking for it. Are there? Oh boy, I really want to sidebar, folks. This is an important thing because we we're going to be spending a couple of movies talking with uh, with this gentleman, and if you don't mind, we, I I do want to get a sense of your tastes a little bit here. Now, all I know about your tastes really is that I've always felt like your tastes are. Uh, this is more of a judgment of myself and the way I think, but just much cooler than mine. You like you you programmed this all night. You and Brian programmed this all night uh, horror extravaganza in Olympia called All Freak at Night. Again, I used to meet you. You know, anyone who's working at the video store, you always just think has cooler tastes than you. Um, I mean, unless they seem like they have totally worse tastes than you, but you were one of those people who always <laughs> seemed like they had cooler tastes. So... I mean, I, I guess I'm not that specific, and like I said, I hadn't picked out that particular, I want to say prejudice, but, you know, we all have our things that we like and don't like. I don't really like horror, you know? So, but I've watched, you know, you could be like, what? That's weird, because you've acted in them, but life is weird that way. So, what's the dividing line? Because sex is in pretty much every film. I think it's when a movie, like, the core of the film is that you're supposed to be you know, entertained by or aroused by, like, the sexual content. Like, a movie like Nine and a Half Weeks, like, there's no way I'm going to watch that. Like, not at knife point, you know? Like, I'm not going to do it. So it's just... And even if it's the sex is dysfunctional and depressing, like, real-life sex, um, as is the case with Eyes Wide Shut, from what I understand, I'd still just, like, I just don't want to be faced with that. Like, I'd rather watch a movie about anything besides sex and sports. Those are the two things I just can't do. Though, Slapshot is amazing and it is very raunchy and about hockey, so who knows? I I have to imagine there's a lot of exceptions that prove the rule here. Like Taxi Driver? You seen Taxi Driver? Yeah, that's not about sex. I mean, that's about a guy like me who is terrified of sex. Oh, okay. And doesn't know how to process it. Okay. So I'm, I'm all for that. So it's not the yeah. it's not the appearance of sex, it's just sort of like people enjoying it. Yeah, as long as people are having miserable sex that makes their lives worse, I'm all for it. Well, let's that brings us back to birth. <laughs> okay. Uh so now the let, let me just say I I'm 
I don't want to say I'm the opposite because it's not like I'm I'm I was particularly drawn to nine and a half weeks either, but I am very drawn to films that explore uh you know, like a film like Eyes Wide Shut that explore the psychology of attraction and the sort of the facades and you know, and I and I like and I, I'm I do enjoy the way the eroticism of film, not even about erotic film, but just like when films are, when film is exciting and people are moving together, whether they're dancing or they're fighting or they're flirting or they're, you know, usually when they're actually fucking, it's not that interesting unless it's a film built around that, but that's a whole other section of the video (laughs) store. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but bringing it back to bringing it back to birth, and actually, we were going to talk about Danny Houston, so so let's get there. Um, okay. His character is so interesting, and and oh, I didn't really describe the film just for the listeners. I'm just gonna, we're not even really going to describe the film here because I, it's not like I don't want to give it away. It's not about spoilers because a lot of times we'll talk through the whole movie and go through every scene, and but with this one. It really is such a mysterious spell. Uh, I just didn't, I don't want to give you the the whole outline, but basically assume that you have watched this film and we'll talk about it as if. So we're going to give away spoilers, but uh, if you feel lost in our description, it's because you haven't watched it. And if you have watched it, then you're going to enjoy this conversation. So, uh, so Danny Houston, he is the villain of this movie. Definitely he he looks like a monster. He's portrayed as a monster. We enjoy watching him fall. His arrogance is like from the very beginning, he comes out and he's telling, doing this toast and saying, I mean, at the very beginning, we see her husband running and then he, we see him die and a baby be born. And then we cut to 10 years later and here's Danny Houston giving this toast and saying how many times he asked Nicole Kidman to marry him and how many times she said no. And now finally she has said yes. And all, I don't know about you, but already I've just got the creeps about like, ugh, this is a terrible story, right? Right. Yeah. She said no, and she said no, and now finally I have captured the damsel. And he's a big, and he, you know, he has this, you know, he has that... John Houston, Danny Houston kind of monster face. And what's funny is he manages to sound arrogant even when he's talking about his failure to be attractive to her. Right. He still sounds like self aggrandizing. And it's like the film is so consistently happening at odds to him, and we are so set up to not like him. And then when the film finally ends, it gets to its, what I think is really beautiful and honest and tragic end with uh, Nicole Kidman walking in the waves in her wedding dress and crying and realizing that she's going to be in love with this, that she's never going to stop being in love with Sean and now she's probably going to keep being in love with this kid and all of this stuff, and then you look at Danny Houston, and in this last moment, you realize, oh my God, I think you're the victim of this story, and you're the hero of the story, because you're going to stay with this woman in spite of this. Like, it's weird. It's just, it does, I don't know about you, but I watched it, and I just had this weird click of like, 
oh my God, this guy who I've hated for the whole movie, if it was just a little bit different, I'm not saying he'd be the hero of it, but he's actually incredibly sympathetic and like he puts up with all of this stuff that doesn't make any sense to anyone. And he's just there at the end. Like he's not angry. The film at the very last moment gives him this weird redemption that really, especially on the most recent watching, just totally took me by surprise. Had you, did you recognize that or have that experience? I, well, no, yeah, he does get, it's funny because the movie hits this apex of him being unlikable when he, you know, throws his physical tantrum (laughs) against the boy. Um, And then it's not too long after that where it ends where you realize like, like, oh no, he isn't just like looking at her as some sort of acquisition. Like he really is desperately in need of this relationship with her. But part of that realization that she's having at the end of the film is that she is never going to love anyone else, like you said, right? including her new husband. Right. And so he's holding her, like grasping her, like desperately, as if he's trying to console her. But like she's mentally like, you know, 10,000 miles away from him. Like he's just inconsequential, you know, in the story to her. And it's really sad for both of them, you know? So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, so we jumped all the way to the end of the film because we had to get, oh, I guess we were talking about people not enjoying having sex. There's a really, I don't know, I guess let's just walk through this film a little bit because I don't want to, I don't want to jump all over the place. So what are some of the, what are some of the standouts for you? I talked about that scene at the opera. I think that's just for the ages, but uh Anything, any, are there any particular scenes or moments in the film that you feel like made it one that you wanted to talk about? Um, there's two, and one of them ended up being what worked against the movie in a lot of ways, I think. Uh, and that was, I'll start with that one, which is a scene where Nicole Kidman is having a bath and just trying to calculate what's going on in her life that's falling apart. And Sean, the 10-year-old, walks in and takes off his clothes and gets in the bath with her. And that scene is just handled so respectfully in the movie, but it's what made people talk about birth and kind of disregard it as like some crazy pedophile fantasy or whatever, you know, like when people were just kind of giggling at it, like school Mm. kids, you know, and that was, it's a really powerful, beautifully done scene, but it kind of got people on the wrong foot with the movie. And then, also between the two of them is a separate scene where he just, you know, he's tried and tried to convince her that he's the reincarnation of her dead husband. And she's tried and tried to not believe that. And then they have this moment where she, you know, basically scolds him in the hallway, like the kid he is. And he's just giving her this look that a 45 year old man would give her, you know, it's like, I'm not a child. I am the man you married, you know? And, and then ultimately he collapses in the hallway, but, and that's very dramatic, but that's, you know, prior to that, the way that they're interacting where she's trying to tell him, no, you're a child. And he's like, no, I'm your husband. And that's all being done. Not in the dialogue, but through their facial expressions. Like that scene is really strong to me. Yeah. And that is the lead up to that opera scene. It's, it's that collapse. And it really is. I don't know why. I don't know why it is so Kubrickian to me. 
maybe someone who is knows who understands film better than I do could explain to me why I feel that way. But when he collapses and then we go to her face and then we go to the opera and we go in on her face, just that it just gives me all the Kubrick feelings. And in a way that maybe it's not, maybe it's just Glazer because with Kubrick, a lot of times I feel like sometimes those moments when they happen, you don't notice them. And then they, then you realize later that they were that. But that one, I feel like it really struck me like that. But every time I go back to that moment, I just have this moment, this feeling of like, this is, maybe it's that pure cinema thing. Like, there's just a lot of things working here to get us to this point. It's like what you're saying, like the scene leading up to it. We could probably just reverse engineer and that everything from the very opening lines is leading to that point. Because the film opens with Sean giving a lecture where he basically says that he doesn't believe in reincarnation. And he says, oh, I got to go out for a run. And then he goes out for this beautiful run and dies and then gets reincarnated. Now, do you, do you think, again, the film is, the, the film is very good at leaving it ambiguous. It, it, the film never tells us this is definitely happening. He is the reincarnated husband. It says, and it doesn't say that it isn't. And all the characters in the film, you know, to one degree or another are believing or disbelieving of it. But what do you think? Do you feel like he is, as you watch the film, when you watch it, do you feel like he really is the reincarnated uh, soul of her husband or that he, that there's something else going on? I mean, not a chance. Like, I think for me, it's totally disproven that, that he's just a shitty little kid. Like, I mean, I think that he's absolutely just a rotten kid that does a terrible thing. I don't feel like there's any chance that it's Sean at all. Wow. Wow. Because I feel like the exact opposite. Really? Brian's with me on this one, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, to me, it's just like the film does a... What I love about it is that the film does such a great job of proving that he is, but that, I mean, but that just, that can't, that just can't work. I feel like that's why it's so sad at the end, because in a way she knows it's true. But again, I, but maybe I'm, I, I don't know. That's wild. That's wild. So you wait, how I hate, I really don't like to, to get too logical with movies because movies are not logical. They don't have to be. Right. So I don't, but since you've made the decision that you feel like you're really sure that he is not the reincarnated uh, husband, how does he get all this information? How does he know all this information? And, and what even would inspire, like he's not, he's, the film doesn't tell us that there's anything malicious about the way he's doing it. Do you believe, you don't think that he's sincere in what he's doing, that he believes this, or he, do you think he's just? What do you I think? think he's, I think he's sincere in his desire to step into not just an adult world, but like a more stable and secure world of these wealthy people in you know like Upper West Side, when he's a poor kid, and you know they established that he found all of the love letters between Sean and his mistress, who's the woman who scolds him at the end. And he doesn't recognize her. He doesn't know who she is. But that was the woman that was sleeping with Sean while he was alive. 
and Anne that's Heche. to me, yeah, yeah it's Anne and that's and that's like where the kid's cover is blown in the movie, you know, and that's when we established he only knew as much as he could gather from, you know, you know that he was able to put together from the evidence that he had, and then when he's confronted by the actual person who'd written those letters, like he didn't even know who she was. And I just feel like that's the end of that. And from that point forward, he acts just like a 10 year old. Like he, he loses the facade. So I need to go back and watch this. This is again, like this film is so mysterious. So your reading of the film. So at the beginning of the movie, let's let's just uh, talk about this. That the beginning of the movie, there's the announcement of the the uh, impending marriage of, from Kidman and Houston, and then they go to a family dinner and they're all getting together in this wonderful green room. Lots of green. The walls, these apartments. I love. That's also the that Kubrick. Polanski thing like these oppressive beautiful oppressive places that uh these these things take place in but uh Anne Heche and Pete uh Stormare yeah yeah Stormare and Tom Newton are both in this movie uh so they are so Anne Heche and Peter Stormare are a couple and they're coming to this uh event and then she has is like I I had to go get a I have to get the wrapping paper or something. And she has this gift that is the box, the the MacGuffin, I guess, in this whole this whole story, which is the box of letters. And she goes and she buries it in the in the park. And it's all very mysterious. Uh, are you saying that that you're that you think that he dug those up in the park? Like when oh, he definitely did. But she, he was already at the party to go and and make the announcement when she went and buried the uh, letters in the park. I thought the way that it's edited, I thought that he found those and they showed that he came into the party after getting them. I don't think so, but I I think, well, again, this, uh, the film is a mystery and I, I love that you're like, I think it proves the point of the mystery of the film that you are a hundred percent confident of one reading of the film. I have a, I'm, you know, I'd say maybe ninety nine percent confident <laughs> in in my reading of the film, and it the film works either way. Um, I heard I listened to one podcast where they were talking about it, and they were saying the whole side plot with the letters doesn't even re- like. It doesn't even really matter. That's not what makes it a great film or not a great film. It's really about, as you said, it's about these people who are so sophisticated having something happen to them that they don't understand and they they don't know how to respond in a way that is that is any. Uh, more dramatic than they respond to anything. Everything is so cool. One of my favorite and weird scenes is there's a scene of Lauren Bacall and Nicole Kidman just eating. And there's some information that Lauren Bacall has to deliver. She uh, heard a message from Sean, the 10-year-old, telling Nicole Kidman's character to come meet him in the park and she'll know where. And... 
you hear Lauren Bacall hear this and then you see them sitting together and just the way they deliver these lines, they're just eating and they're just being so, they're being, I don't know, so both sophisticated and normal and not really relating, but relating information. And it sort of, it feels like that way all the way through. Like there's this great interview scene where Arliss Howard is playing the brother-in-law and he's interviewing Sean and you can tell he's having his mind blown in the conversation, but he's, again, they, there's a lot of people sort of like saying something that they believe and then sort of laughing about it. Like, ha, ha, ha it's not possible, <laughs> but is they, and then they don't have the, but is it, but it is there. It's implied, but is it? Um, I feel like ultimately everyone believes it's happening except for Lauren Bacall. I feel like she's the only person who never bends to the possibility. <laughs> Did you you know the scene where uh, the sister is given ba- given birth and they're looking at the babies and Lauren Bacall just says, "Maybe he's Sean." Yeah, that's so good. It's <laughs> so good. I don't know if it was intentional, but Sean is a physicist and it during the interview when he says when he talks about splitting the atom this cat runs across the table and i couldn't help but think of the schrodinger's cat paradox and splitting the atom and like this film is just very deep in and i think this is one of the things that happens with films that are so well constructed that then when accidents happen inside of them they're the perfect accident to have all this extra meaning and maybe that was intentional, or maybe it was just uh, a happy accident that... Uh, but by the time it ends up in the cut, it ceases to be an accident, right? At that point, right. if you include the one with the cat right after he says splitting the atom, then you're letting us think that, which I just think is fun. Yeah. I'd never considered that that might have meaning, so I tend to avoid uh, symbolism. <laughs> like, I want, you know, I just don't like to give a movie more credit than it is aiming for, but um, you're, you're totally right. That could have very well been deliberate or the opposite. Well, let's talk about the the kid actor. It's amazing. Cameron Bright. Yeah, it's uh, it's in this sort of golden age of kid actors with Haley Joel Osment and uh, what's her name? Dakota Fanning. Yeah, Dakota Fanning. And then this kid, Cameron Bright, and whoever it was who was in Unbreakable. There was just a lot of... A lot of good kid actors, the yeah. turn of the millennium. Uh, Dakota Fanning's sidebar is really incredible in the most underrated Kurt Russell movie, Dreamer, by the way. Just yeah. want to throw that out there. Yeah, maybe we should come back and do an episode about it sometime. Brian loves it, too. He cries every time he watches it. So, oh. yeah, it has, you know, but nobody cares. The world is wrong about Dreamer, but going, going back to the Cameron Bright, sorry. Yeah, there's a moment... The moment that really kills me is really the so everyone gets uh gets uncomfortable about the bath scene uh or the bath right. scenes but the scene that makes me really uncomfortable on the rewatch is the scene when the mom's trying to be nice to him and he just says I'm not your stupid son anymore and yeah. it's the way the deadpan way that he says it that's why there's a part of me that just believes he believes like He's a kid going through, and I'm going to give my interpretation, but it doesn't discount yours. But for me, it's this kid 
who's going through a transformation that he doesn't understand. Like, he seems more sure of all of this, but even that, it feels like, God, if you imagine being the mother of that kid, so weird. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's funny because the way I look at it is, like, there's people, for instance, former presidents or whatever, that, like, be, that come to believe their lives, very their own lives, very easily. And to me, that scene was always him just trying to sell himself further on this illusion that he's building. Like, when he says to his mother, I'm not your stupid son, like, he's trying to tell himself, I'm not this kid anymore, I'm going to be Sean. Like, I have to be Sean. Like, I've started this thing, but I, I can't stop now, you know? And that's my, that was my read of it. I love it for you. It's a heist movie. <laughs> it pretty much is. Yeah, he's heisting her heart. Yeah. Did you notice that just the way it's lit, sometimes the characters, particularly the Anne Heche character, it she seems like she... And sometimes with Cameron, too, with Cameron Bright, with the, the Sean character, that they have these black eyes the way like their eyes their pupils just get totally dark like uh like a doll's eyes oh sorry um <laughs> did you notice that like there's those different times when i was the first time i watched i was like is this going to be and i think maybe that's it when you're watching it the first time you are prepared for it to go into this supernatural place like an over-the-top supernatural place the way that Sixth Sense or uh, Rosemary's Baby does. But it doesn't. But still, you're I don't know. There, there's something about the, the blackness of the eyes of some of the characters seemed like a... I don't know. I don't know if it was intentional, but it would acted as a sort of a red herring for me. Did you notice any of that? Um that wasn't something I picked up on, but there's an unreasonable amount of unlit rooms where people are just sitting despondently or having normal conversations in like a room at dusk in like a beautiful home where they just don't have any lights on. And there's a lot of darkness in the movie. Um, but I didn't notice specifically the eyes, but it is true that like in Anne Hesh's apartment, there's almost no light ever. Right. Like when they show, her into the storm area, it's like none. Yeah, just natural light, seems like. Yeah, kind of minimal. Right. Even then, but so, and you know, it's funny because like Sexy Beast is the opposite. You know, it's like, you know, even though it's about violence and stuff, it's like very lit and very, you know, feels like a movie. And this, and Birth feels like, you know, you're kind of just spying on this family going through this thing. So. Yeah, I read somewhere where, or I listened to on a podcast somewhere where they were saying that um, they did know, there was no direct lighting. It was all bouncing off the ceilings. They never did any just sort of just direct facial lighting. And maybe, you know, I'd say never. There's probably some scenes where they did, but in general, uh, or maybe they never did. But in the that is part of what gave it that, gives it that sense of, I don't say realism is the wrong word, but I think you're right. That sense of spying on people not who are not in directly in the light. Right. Yeah, there was a couple of other of a couple of other things that really 
I kind of just sort of stuck with me in a in a way. Again, something about watching these, uh, doing the research for these. I watched Birth when it came out, and it was so powerful to me that I just I never went back to it. I just sort of kept it in this place of like, that's a great film, and I love it, but I don't want to ruin it. And for this, I don't know about ruining it, but I've watched it now two or three times in the last couple of weeks, and things start to emerge. You start to to appreciate things that were just part of the spell, and now you're like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Uh, so there's that. There's this great part where uh, Nicole Kidman's character asks Sean, the kid, when she goes to meet him in the park, she asks, who was the one who told me there is no Santa Claus? Which is kind of a, I don't know, it's sort of a weird, it's kind of a line, right? I mean, if she wasn't such a good actor and the film hadn't earned it, that would seem pretty damn written. But... Again, in the spell of the film, you're just going along and you're like, yeah, okay. And then there's one of the great reveals is when he recognizes the woman who told her there was no Santa Claus. But as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about, oh, well, that's kind of that's kind of what's going on here. It's like someone trying to figure out, is this is the world magical? Is true love real? Does it transcend time? All of these sort of fairy tale ideas. I want to believe them. And there's the world is giving me evidence to believe them. And her family are the ones who taught her that it's not that don't believe in all this stuff. And it's just it's such a. I don't know that. This is why it's so hard to talk about this film, because I kind of I can feel it, but I I can't quite get my arms around it. Like, it's not. Like even saying that makes it feel like it's a little bit cheap, but it's not because it is that feeling. I mean, I guess it is for me because I came away with this feeling of like, I believe this and I feel so sad for this woman and for this kid who is going to have to give up the part of him that like he has this magical thing that he remembers his past life and now... Society is going to teach him that that was just him being a nutty kid. Again, not along your timeline of how you interpret it, which is also a totally valid interpretation. But I think that's probably why the film speaks to me in that way, because I think I live in that place of trying to figure out how much magic is science and how much science is magic, how much of the fairy tales we are told comes from some sort of essential truths and how much is just, you know, programming and things that people say to make themselves feel better. Um, I, I'm definitely with you in that I always want the supernatural explanation in a movie. Like, I always, you know, if I figure you're creating fiction, go for it. Go all the way. And so when I watched Birth, I was like, yep, that's the husband. That, he's in the kid, that's for sure. <laughs> and I really didn't even consider, it's like the first, I don't know, the, for the entire movie until the last 10 minutes that he might be lying. It didn't even occur to me. And then, but then the, something in the plot took a turn and I was like, oh, he lied. And I, and I was totally fine with it because the movie's so strong. You know, I didn't feel betrayed. Like I would, like it, wasn't, it didn't feel like a Scooby-Doo ending, you know, which it could have in oh, yeah. balance's hands, right? And um, 
I, I one more reason, and I think into specifics too much, but like that, I think that it wasn't the husband, but rather just a little boy, you know, lying, is because the same question that Anne Hess presents to the kid, which is, if you were him, you would have come to me. You wouldn't have gone to her. And it's established, yeah. you know, already at that point that that adult Sean didn't really love his wife, that he was in love with a different woman and he wanted to be with her instead. Well, that's what she says. Oh, see, maybe she's lying. Anything about that? <laughs> or, or, I mean, I don't necessarily, or just fooling her. Like, you could, you could see a scenario where someone who is the other woman thinks that she is the true love and if push came to shove and she was like choose me or her he would say what are you crazy you're married to my best friend and i love my wife we are you know we have this thing but this is not that thing you're not my soulmate what are you crazy? <laughs> Look, I can feel. I could. I mean, Sean didn't say that because he's a kid, and right. And again, this is again the way I, the way I made it work in my brain. Like she is definitely portrayed as an unstable character. But let's talk about her though. She's amazing in this though. Yeah, she is yeah, so she is. haunted. And every time that I see like the camera, like we'll, we're, we haven't even talked much about Nicole Kidman's performance. It's amazing. I guess we'll we'll get to that, but. Oh my God! I I didn't even know it was Han Han Haish. Like I had I had to look it up. I was like, who is that woman? I know I recognize her, but she seems so haunted and tensed and tense and whew and yeah, like those dark eyes. Like I was sure that she was some kind of monster at the beginning of the movie. Like she had some nefarious, monstrous thing. But no, she's just a woman who's having an affair. Right. <sighs> wow. Well, the the things with her is. I mean, A, the fact that he doesn't recognize her is very telling, you know, for me. And also, she only had those letters, because the letters were between adult Sean and Nicole Kidman's character. Yeah. They weren't between Anne Hesh's and him. And she says, he gave me these to prove that you, that the relationship with his wife meant nothing. Yeah. He gave me all of the letters she'd sent him. And that's pretty powerful, you know? <laughs> I mean, just in, in writing, like, that, that is a very substantial move on adult Sean's part. You're right. No, you're right. It's complicated. It's a complicated, messy thing. That does. Yeah. I kind of like that they they threw that in there because it does. As you're as we're, we're demonstrating, it makes it that much more complex and confusing. Like again, a lesser director would just take it as assumed that true love transcends time and make a movie about that. Right. And this is a movie that yeah. it's true. Like Nicole Kidman's love transcends death. She, I don't think she's ever going to let go of Sean. Mm-hmm. But his love didn't even transcend life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is, I mean, I've had, se- I listened to several podcasts where I, I, at least one where they, I, I, in particular, where they're like, can you believe that this was written by a man? So maybe there's something in there, the feeling for, well, uh, let's go to the Rosemary's Baby connection. Did you feel that when you were watching this? Because you know, just right from her haircut and the setting, I found it at, at right off the bat. That was my initial touchstone on this. And then what it pleased me was sort of like, oh, well, this is kind of like this more than Rosemary's Baby. Because it doesn't need this, you know, 
it's doing the same thing. She's still sort of controlled and she's still dealing with the mysteries of love and birth and the ma- this magical thing, but but it's not a horror movie. Uh, did you did you feel those connections? I think well, I can totally see that. Um I don't think about Roman Polanski because of who he is. <laughs> so I pretend he was never born. Um, but that doesn't, that's not an excuse for not drawing that parallel, because obviously I've seen Rosemary's Baby before. Um, but what I think might be even more effective for me in birth than in that movie is in Rosemary's Baby, She's she, seems, she feels isolated, but she still has the support of her husband, and she's still, you know, the, the appearance of the support of her husband, right? Right. And in birth, she just feels so alone, even though she lives with her family, she has a fiance, but she just feels so cut off from experiencing life until this possibility of her husband's reincarnation pops up, you know? And like in Rosemary's Baby, it starts with like hope and we're having a new future and my husband's successful, we have a beautiful new apartment. And in birth, it starts off with like she's got nothing, even though she has everything, you know, but she just feels like pre-defeated. Whereas in Rosemary's Baby, it's like halfway through the movie where she becomes defeated. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like she really sells this like isolation, and that's why she needs to believe it's him. It's because she hasn't felt anything since he died. That's yeah. what I get from her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally... I totally get the that um, distinction. Also, I mean, this is where we get to Kidman because, well, Mia Farrow is is great in Rosemary's Baby, but that is a pretty, I don't know, a mo- a pretty maudlin performance compared to what to the the high wire act that Nicole Kidman is delivering here. And this is not to knock Mia Farrow's performance or whatever. It's fine. But this is a totally different thing. <laughs> what, right. the, it's one of the things I, I heard about this is that uh, Glazer and his screenwriter really built the role around Kidman. Like they would be, so they would be interviewing her throughout or like talking with her and then they would write new scenes or rewrite scenes to, to make it more personal, to make it more, you know, to just to draw the reality around her, which I think has got to be really interesting for someone who she's such a character actress that she, cause she, she doesn't play herself. And I wouldn't say that this, I don't think that this role is her. So then you have her playing a character, but then you have the film building itself around her portrayal of that character and infusing it with little tidbits that they're being able to get from her life. Um, Right. It just leads to, like I said, that's that one scene in the, the opera. It's just a face and a camera. It's like, how, how long is that scene? I think it's about a minute to a minute and a half. Yeah, it's amazing. And, uh, and it's just what it, I mean, the film earns it, but then you have to have the person in that scene sitting in that seat 
Like, no, I can't, I don't know any other actor who could do that. Um, and as I've been watching and watching all of her films, she works so well in silence and in, 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 in perceived stillness. Like, her body might not be moving, but there's just, like, so much going on on her face and behind her eyes that there's a whole story that can play out. But she's doing that all throughout. It's just this, like, there's this great scene, uh, the scene where she's trying to explain to Peter Stormare and Anne Heche in their kitchen what has happened. And... Right. Again, I think it maybe it's multiple shots, but it feels like it's one shot. I think it might be a couple of different shots there, but because uh, they're they do go back and forth between the points of view. But again, just her lightness, like she's just someone who's trying so desperately to put on a good front and get help and tell us a, a story that she knows makes her sound crazy. And she and I love that she never. A lot of the characters never say the obvious things. Like she never says. I know it sounds, I don't think she says, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like she says, I know it sounds crazy. It's just implied. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's more of that like laughing at something that isn't funny because that's the only right. way you know how to respond to pretend like it's not a big deal. I'm just telling you something that <laughs> like she doesn't, again, she's a much better actress than me. You can hear even in just my beginning to try and do it, that there are so many traps you could fall into that just break right. the spell. She doesn't for a second. No, I was like, oh, yeah, the, the movie's on her shoulders the whole time, for sure. Like, I mean, everybody's really great in it. Like, there's no half-assed performance. Like, Danny Houston is stagey, but it's because his character is supposed to be, like, this big stagey New York jackass. So, like, you know, it makes sense. But, um, yeah, it's like, but everyone's great, but she's just, like, totally pulling that movie, you know, in, like, in every, in every scene that she's in. Which is most of the movie. Like she's in the film constantly. Like you know, and and there's so many characters, but like there's very few moments that aren't driven by her. Yeah, she is. Uh, she is definitely one of the very very special ones. I um, God, I could go through so many of her films, but we're we're here to talk about the, we're here to talk about this one now. We were talking. I don't want to put you on the spot. But we're talking. We both hadn't seen Under the Skin before this. I right. did watch Under the Skin. Did you watch Under the Skin? Nope, I did not. <laughs> oh. Well, for those who did, I just want to point out that Jonathan Glazer seems to have a thing with eating cake. There's a lot of cake in this movie. Cake plays prominently in the film Under the Skin. I won't give that away for you, Zach. Just I don't think that's a spoiler. But there's an important cake seen in uh in under the skin so i just wanted to draw that connection and yeah it's just a, it's a it's a it's a great movie i don't jonathan glazer takes a lot of time to make movies but uh i'm i can't wait for his next one i mean i will wait for his next one but i am i'm really looking forward i'm looking forward to it but considering how long it took me to watch under the skin it'll probably come out and i'll wait five years because I'm so excited about it that I can't make myself watch it. Uh, do you ever have that experience where there's something that you're just so excited for that you don't feel like it's a good enough, like every day you're like, nah, this day doesn't deserve that film. You know, I haven't done that, but Brian definitely did it with the Kevin James movie. Here comes the boom. 
Here comes the boo. Boom. Boom. I, I did. Yeah, it's a, I don't know this film. Is this uh, uh Kevin James, the heavy sex comedian, made an MMA movie. Um, and Brian was so excited about it, but it took him a year to watch it because he just wanted to wait for the perfect moment. So, you know, so there's the parallel between Under the Skin and Here Comes the Boom, starring Kevin James. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, Dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know, and if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway, and we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paperhouse Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. We were in a film together. People who who are fans of... uh... Troll 2, the worst movie ever made, which is a far cry from Birth by Jonathan Glazer. But <laughs> we were both in this film. And I'm sure that people will be will hear your name on this because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are just people who have an encyclopedic knowledge of film. They'll say, wait a second, why didn't you guys talk about that? Why didn't uh, Andros, why didn't you ask Zach about, uh, about his involvement in Troll 2, the worst movie ever made? How did you come to, to be involved in that? That was an accident. So um, the documentary that you and I are both in is called Best Worst Movie. You know, oh, sorry. About Troll 2. Best Worst Movie. Yeah, yeah. And, um, no, no, it's fine. Um, but the director of the documentary was the child actor lead in Troll 2. And I had already decided to do a screening of Troll 2 here in Austin. You know, just I, I've been film programming at a movie theater. And... I think I was contacted by the little kid from Troll 2 who was now, you know, 30 years old. And he said, hey, can I come out to that? And, you know, we're shooting a documentary about our experience as being the stars of the worst movie ever made and how it ruined our lives and then made it. And then suddenly we realized it was the best thing that ever happened to us. And he came out, he brought out the other actors in the movie. And it was this incredible moment where, like, we all just instantly became friends. And they ended up taking me to Europe with them for no reason and, like, shooting in Europe for weeks. Um, and it was just because of my incredible enthusiasm for Troll 2. I think that they just like added me to their crew and just started, took me with them everywhere until the movie came out, including the premiere of the movie. It was very weird. I didn't deserve it. And then you're in the movie because there's a part where they go to a horror convention. I'll let you pick it up from here. Well, I too didn't deserve to be in this movie. <laughs> because I pretty much became the butt. I'm, I'm kind of the butt of a joke. I mean, it, he ends up turning the joke around on him, but he finds me and Toy Newkirk from Nightmare on Elm Street Four sitting at a table in Texas. The way it's shot, it looks like it's the same day as uh, what, whatever you shot in Europe. But uh, that's the magic of movies. But then he comes over and looks at us signing, and is like, "Well, here's some other people, and they haven't ever done anything else either." And then I write a picture on a, just a close up on my picture, and <laughs> what's funny? What's funny is I had I had heard about that I was in Troll Two, the best worst movie, uh, but I had never seen it, and until uh, I, until recently I was just uh, 
kind of inspired to check it out. And I thought it was totally something else because there was another convention at that I filmed some stuff for for a movie, but it didn't end up in it. I just found out uh, it was comic book, the movie, the uh, Mark Hamill directed a movie about uh, con culture, but uh, sort of. Uh, it, not a documentary, but about sort of a parody of someone trying to do a superhero film uh, using a release at cons. And there was a point where I was playing music at this con and uh, it led to one of the best days of my life. I got to hang out smoking pot and talking about the kinks with Mark Hamill when he was in when he was in his, you know, I guess sort of more loser kind of phase before his, you know, his the force reawakened. Uh, but I, I didn't end up in comic book, the movie. And for the longest time I had put the two together. So I heard I was in troll too. And for the longest time, I somehow I thought that I was in something that involved Mark Hamill, but I was wrong about all of it. So anyway, I just thought, you know, we share that connection. I figured, you know, you're going to be on our next episode talking about destroyer. Maybe we'll find some other odd anecdote to discuss. Is there anything that you'd like to promote? You have a show that you're currently in production on? Well, it's not really a show. It's it's a uh, it's much less than that. Very exciting. Um th- there's a lot of people that got like excited about that platform Twitch online, which was initially for people to just watch each other play video games. It's insane to me. But mm-hmm. now it's kind of become its own little mini broadcast studio and uh some friends of mine in LA started this weekly found footage thing called the Museum of Home Video, but it got so many viewers that they're now kind of turning that into their own, like, UHF station, like Weird Al, or they're just going to do a bunch of crazy programming on this little, you know, corner of that platform. So uh, in a couple, in a few weeks, we're starting our own Twitch series through Museum of Home Video. It's called Death Blade, and it's like this international low-budget action movies that are just completely off the hook that nobody knows about, like Indonesian revenge films and, like, you know, exploding motorcycle movies and just, it's just going to be like totally out of hand. Do you have any titles, any titles uh, lined up for your opening episodes? Well, the first one we're going to do is a film called Art of Dying that was uh, directed by and starring this character actor named Wings Hauser, who was this like toxically self-destructive maniac, brilliant actor. And there's a scene in the movie uh, for example, uh, the one tender moment of the movie, he's with his girlfriend and they're being intimate in the kitchen, but he is chugging a gallon of milk while he's having sex with her. Um, and the rest of the movie is much more insane. He also gets a rabbit drunk on vodka on the beach. It's just completely out of control. And it has like tons of car crashes and you know people getting shot and flying through windows. And it's just totally nuts. But Art of Dying, brilliant. That's our first. Uh, couple couple things. One, you don't have to say this actor. It's a movie starring Wings Hauser. You don't need to have to say he's already starring in the movie. But this actor Wings Hauser, as if we don't know the guy from Tough Guys Don't Dance. Come on, trust our it's audience. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, that was just for the one. 13-year-old in Tulsa that's listening to this. Who I thought really, that maybe kinda... that you, it was the wrestling star Wingshauser or the fam- famous politician Wingshauser or... The ballerina Wingshauser. The ballerina. <laughs> star, it's a film starring the ballerina Wingshauser. Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that out. And uh, I encourage people who enjoyed this show, of course, to check out 
Radio 8 Ball, the show that I started in Olympia many, many years ago. How is it possible that I never had you on Radio 8 Ball, Zach? I don't know. Maybe you didn't like me. No, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. You don't know. I, I don't dislike any. I really, I don't think I dislike. I certainly don't like dislike anyone who I can have good conversations with about movies. There's a lot of people who don't. I think a lot of people don't don't like me. And so I avoid them because I, you know, I don't want to be disliked in person. I'd rather be disliked from afar. But you're definitely not one of those people. Although, you know, uh, Olympia is such a weird little town. People walk around thinking that everybody hates them when mostly nobody's thinking about anybody else. Uh, that's, I think that's accurate. No, Brian and I always liked you very much, so this is a heartwarming moment in your show. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, tune into the next episode, and we'll talk about the historic transgendered punk rock opera that was a sensation in Olympia that also was the was the other time that Zach and I collaborated in uh, in an entertainment product like Troll 2, Best Worst Movie. Uh, but you have to tune in next week when we're going to be talking about a film that you're going to be delivering to us. Zach, what is that film? Oh, boy. It's Destroyer, which is a much more recent Nicole Kidman film that just kind of vanished you know, upon its release and without any conversation. I don't think it was disregarded. It was just ignored. You know, it's like it didn't happen, and I think it's way underrated. So let's do that. Yeah, so make sure to watch Destroyer to be prepared for that. And if you want to be like me, don't stop there. Go check out all of the films from Karen Kusama. She did Girl Fight. She did Aeon Flux. She did Jennifer's Body, and she did The Invitation. I saw, and then Destroyer. And uh, I've seen four out of five of those, and we'll be discussing them to some degree or another in our next episode. If you enjoy what we do here, please, you can reach out to us uh, at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And... um, yeah, uh, just to remind you, it's not in this case. It's easy, it's pretty easy to find the film Birth, but if you're ever listening to us talk and there's a film that we're talking about that is hard to find, check out our website. Someone might have uploaded it and posted it there with a prominently displayed password that you can use to access that content. But uh, I don't know how it got there, but you might want to check it out if there's any uh, episodes that are like that. So uh, I guess that's about it. And uh, thank you for, the, for hanging out with, for this first film, Zach. Oh, I loved it. And until next time, folks, just remember, wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. How do you know where Sean died? Do you know what deja vu is? Sure. It was like that. How did Sean meet Anna? Didn't she tell you? How did Sean meet Anna? We met at the beach. How's Mr. Reincarnation enjoying his cake? He likes it. Where's Anna? The only reason she's letting you stay in this house is because she wants to help you. 
So don't get the wrong idea. How do you know what you know? I'm Sean. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.